Hello, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders, about to do the first part of this podcast for the second time this morning, because uh, again, I'm doing it without my morning coffee. So after talking for about 10 to 15 minutes or so about uh, the intro for this, I realized that my microphone wasn't plugged in. So yeah, there was some good time well wasted there. So now the mic's plugged in. I believe I'm live. It's showing my voice. I don't even, the, the program that I use actually shows the fact that my voice is on here. Like you can see the little waves. I don't know what I was thinking because the thing was flatlined the entire time, but oh well. So first off, I just want to say thank you to everyone who chimed in with questions last week. I put a message up on my Facebook page asking folks to ask any questions they'd want me to answer in, in a podcast I was doing. I like doing the Q&A ones every once in a while, and I had a couple questions I was starting off with that I got off my webpage and my, what was it, it was YouTube comments, I believe, and I needed some other stuff to, to kind of buffer it out, and at the time of recording that, I had like five or six people respond, well, by the time I ended the podcast, there were like 10, 15, and now there's like 25 different responses, so the good news is I got my podcast definitely covered for today, my topics, I'm going to be answering some more of these questions because they got some really good ones in there, and some of them are so involved that they will actually be an entire podcast unto themselves later on. So I can't thank everybody enough for chiming in with this. Again, I come up with ideas. I have a list of ideas I go through and I mull them over. And usually it's like the morning of I, I pick what I'm going to talk about. For some of the things that are more complicated, I like to take notes on, but a lot of them I just sit down and start chatting about. It. I like that format better. I hate reading from notes. It just kind of slows me down. Even my teaching, I kind of just, I kind of, I don't want to say wing it, but I, I don't like having a script. I like being able to flow. I like being able to bounce off the, the kids. So I don't do a lot of scripted stuff. So a lot of times it's just me sitting down with a topic going, all right, let's go with it. Um, in this case, so there's a couple I do want to look a couple points up on, not that they're going to be scripted, I never do that, but just so I make sure I'm informed and cover all my points. So those I'm going to wait till later, but do know if I don't cover your question today, I will be covering, I'm going to address every single one of these, so please, if I don't get to your question, know it's coming down the line, they'll, they'll all get addressed. So again, thank you so much, um, we'll get on to that in a second, just one thing I want to bring people's attention to. I posted on my Facebook page, I believe three weeks ago now, that I was part of the Fatal Fangs feeding tournament. A bunch of YouTubers got together and Bug Realms is running it with Tarantula TV and basically cool competition where everybody gets to do feeding videos and they submit them and people get to vote for them. Well, I went against Tarantula Cat, who I honestly thought I was going to lose that one. A, she's incredibly popular. I mean, her her audience is growing by leaps and bounds. She's just a very affable, fun-to-watch YouTuber, knows her stuff. So I thought her legions of fans were going to really vote me out of this thing. And plus, she did a fantastic clip with a Panthabedius species that flipped over on its back. So I really thought this one was going to be close, but I did win. So thank you, Tarantula Cat, for keeping it classy. She was. We both joked about... Um, poo talking each other behind the scenes, but neither of us could bring each other to do ourselves to do it. So there was no real beef there or anything. We couldn't really promote it like that. There was no WWE type stuff. So unfortunately, Cat's out of the competition. I feel bad because I really would have liked to see Cat go on further. She was one of the ones I really enjoy watching. But the good news is Tom's Big Spiders moves ahead. So I will be going up against Predator or Prey online, which he had a fantastic one next time. I'm a little nervous, and unfortunately, some of the stuff people are doing is just um, 
off off the charts as far as wackiness and, and cool, strange things. So I'm, I'm a little worried on this one because Billy and I are pretty much straight-laced as far as our feeding videos. I'm never going to do anything that might put us or the spiders at risk. It's just my personal thing. So I, you're not going to get a lot of flash out of me, but I do think I got a good one for this one. So hopefully some of you guys will come and vote if mine's the best. So hopefully you'll vote for mine because my goal is I really want to meet Mark from Mark's Tarantulas in the finals of this thing. I mean, I didn't really... Again, I'm not into competitions, and when Mark and I do these the um, Off the Tongs Challenge, it's a fun thing for Mark and I. Nobody really cares who wins or loses. Mark's usually always going to win those. But we've been doing this for a while, and it would really be cool if he and I could meet up at some point. So my goal is to move on long enough so I finally meet Mark. Hopefully Mark moves on with his next one. He won his first round, and I think that would be cool. And I think a lot of people that like the Off the Tongs Challenges and Mark and I's banner back and forth would appreciate that. At least that's my theory on it. So anyway, I'll be posting that information up tomorrow. I believe it goes live at 2 o'clock, the video with the quarterfinals. And then you'll be able to vote around that time, and you can vote once a day. So, you know, feel free to come back and vote as I bang my keyboard and probably make a big noise in this. So, anyway, moving on to the questions, I'm going to click over to Facebook because for some reason I can't pull this up on my phone right now. And we're going to look at some of the questions that were asked when I put the call out. Again, I was absolutely floored with the number of questions I got and the number of great questions I got, like things that I don't think I would have thought of. So we've covered a couple of them already. Um, one, let's start off with an easier one. Let's see. Um, Kira Dennis, I would love some tips on how to remove uneaten prey items. I've heard you and others emphasize the importance of removal, but how the heck do you get those buggers out without tearing up the habitat and disturbing the tea? This is funny because I, I think I'm starting to recognize that I'm fairly fortunate in this, that my high-hand coordination at my age is still fairly good because I have no problem t- uh, using the tongs to get it. I shouldn't say no problem, but I have a very good time picking up prey items with tongs. I can grab crickets like... Remember the original Karate Kid with Daniel trying to grab the fly out of the air with the chopsticks? Like I always joke to Billy, like, look at my skills here. And I've got, I think, a soft touch because I've done art for so many years that I've got good control that I don't squish them ever. Because I know a lot of people have said they, they grab them, they get so spastic with it that they end up squishing them. So I get that that can be difficult. One thing that I used um, years ago when I first started out that you got to be careful with, but it worked really well for me, is I basically made a little spear. I took a, I believe it was a sewing needle, and affixed it to the end of a paintbrush. It was my special little thing to fish things out. And what I would do, and this is kind of gross, but it did work pretty well when they got in spaces that you couldn't reach them. I would basically harpoon them with this, take them out, and kill them. I mean, that was it, it sounds kind of gross. But rather than have them lay, uh, leave them in there with the tarantula, it worked really well with crickets because those little boogers can move and get behind stuff. Or when I started using, first started using Dubia roaches, my big problem was that was before I was crushing their heads. And again, a, a heads up to anybody that uses the Dubia for feeders, they will immediately, the majority of them will burrow. And you'll find them later on. They don't seem to hurt the tarantula. I've never had a problem with any of them hurting the tarantula, although I'm sure somebody out there has had issues with it. But they don't seem to hurt the tarantula. But what they do is they burrow. And usually by the time you find them, like one of them I found literally oh gosh, it had to be like seven, eight months later when I did a rehouse and it was like twice the size. So the trick is you crush their heads. What will happen is they'll wander around like zombies. That makes them easy to pluck out. If the spider's not interested, they still move. So the spider will actually go at them, but they won't burrow and they won't hide. The problem with Dubia is they're a lot brighter than we give them credit for when you drop them into an enclosure. I've had spiders immediately detect them and kind of... 
basically pounce on them and they freeze and they will wait and wait and wait and wait. The other day I dropped one in with my AC Monty female and she put her front leg on it and the dubia just sat there. I checked two hours later. She was still there with her front foot on the dubia and the dubia was still there not moving she finally got it it was like five hours later i came in she had gotten it i don't know how long it took but it had stayed still for quite some time so that's something to keep in mind make it easier on yourself beforehand by if you're using mealworms crush the heads if you're using superworms definitely crush the heads there's a video out there of mine of me dropping a mealworm in with a tarantula. The tarantula is eating it, and what I didn't realize is the mealworm had looped around and actually was biting the tarantula's leg, and the tarantula was trying to bring its leg out of the way. So be careful with those. Crush their heads. Unfortunately, with the with the superworms, they seem to stop moving completely when you crush their heads. The mealworms will move a little bit. I haven't had any problems with the red runners per se, but those little boogers, if you're using the red runners, the um, lateralis, be uh, lateralis, whatever it is, they can be kind of a pain in the butt to round. They're very, very quick. They're a little easier to squish than the crooked. So depending on what you're using, you know, tongs or whatever tweezers. I use tweezers for the little tiny ones. It can be a little tricky plucking those guys out. But that's something you can do ahead of time to make it easier to retrieve them. Because if I drop into Dubia that doesn't have, that has its head, and chances are if the spider doesn't eat it, then it's going to go around one of the corners and it's going to burrow or climb underneath its corkbark hide or whatever it may be the moss and hide so the trick is to disable them before you drop them in which makes them a lot easier to catch so that will help with crickets you can actually pull off the back legs if you want to that makes it easier again i feel bad because it feels it sounds like you're torturing the poor thing but they you can pinch them right off and they come right off which makes them a little bit easier to catch because they're not hopping all around the cage because one of the problems i used to have with crickets is you drop them in the spider would bat it away it obviously wasn't going to eat wasn't feeling like eating at the moment and then when you go to grab it, you miss it with the tong, so the thing bounces up in the air and then lands on the tarantula or by the tarantula, which startles the tarantula, which gets you a threat pose. I've had this happen actually a couple times with Formictopus species. One where I, I, I won't say I came close to getting tagged, but it was my hand was definitely a little closer to the spider than I would have wanted. So if you take the back legs off, it makes them a little easier to catch. And again, I... I it's tough for me to come up with other ideas because eventually it just got to the point where I got good enough with the tongs that I can pretty much pinpoint. I try to predict where it's going to go and I grab it. I mean, that's a trick right there. When you're trying to wrangle the red runners, don't try to grab the red runner where it is. Grab where it's about to go because they move so quickly. That's generally how I get them. I head them off. And again, it takes a couple tries. And the spear, if you can do the spear thing, you just need to be very, very careful. Obviously, if you've got a tarantula in there, that when you're using it, you're using it away from the tarantula or not poking it into a burrow where you could possibly be stabbing the tarantula through the burrow. I was just very careful. I'd usually get one in a corner and catch it that way. I've also used spoons to kind of corral them. So say you get a cricket in a corner, you use a spoon to kind of cup it and then slide it up the top of the side of the enclosure and get it out that way. Um, Those are tricks I've used. But again, I don't think there's a perfect science to it, but I would encourage people that have other tricks. There might be other things out there to try. Uh, For me, it's just... I drop it in, the spider doesn't take it, I wait till it gets in a corner away from the spider and pluck it out with a pair of tongs, back in the day it was with the spear, or worst case scenario, if it gets in with a bunch of, like sometimes I'll get in a corner underneath some moss or something like that, I'll get in there with the spoon and kind of scoop the whole thing out. Last ditch, I can tell you, the easy, one of the easiest things you can do too, it's, it might waste a feeder insect, but it works great, is you just smush it. So if it's in the corner, I've had situations where the stupid things are just running around, they're not giving up, I can't get it, then you just get something in there, get it in a corner or something, and squish it with something flat, and then pull it out that way, and that works really well. So again, 
it shouldn't happen all that often, but obviously sometimes you go to feed them and they're in pre-malt. The, the trick, the thing that really can be a nightmare is when you drop it in and they're in pre-malt and they're not eating and it runs down the burrow. That can be a tricky one, but I've yet to disturb a burrow to get a cricket out. Usually they will bat it. They'll either kill the cricket and leave it there or they'll bat it out of the way and the cricket will go back out the burrow. And a lot of times they'll go after the cricket leaves the burrow, they'll go and web up over the burrow entrance. So that would be my advice. Either grab them with the tongs, grab them with the spoon, smush them if you're having a real hard time. And I know I was talking to somebody who had, I believe it was arthritis or something with a hand. They couldn't really manipulate the tongs the way they would like to, with the speed they would like to. So in that case, you just wait till it gets in a corner opposite of the tarantula, get something, have something ready. You know, a wooden dowel works great. Not that everybody has those lying around, but I had one in my garage. It was cut off wooden dowel for something I was making. And you just smash it with that and then grab it right out. It's no problem. All right, next up, we have one by Stuart Tripp. What has been your biggest challenge as a keeper? Has there ever been a time when you wanted to give it all up and why? Ooh, I can actually answer that one. Um, Last year, during the winter, I think I documented this a couple times in my podcast not so much in my videos because I was trying to keep things positive for the time being but it's, it's mentioned I just didn't do a special on it. but I had a situation where I had more losses than I've ever had in my career now to to start this one off doing the Tom's Big Spiders thing when I first started putting out my website and doing care things it was really important to me that I had my stuff in check like I didn't want to go be one of these people that's going out giving people advice on how to keep tarantulas that didn't have success in the hobby themselves that didn't know what they were talking about that's a huge pet peeve of mine when people go out and just start grabbing a bunch of animals and talking about their care and they know nothing about them that was never the point and I've always been very very aware as it's grown that people look up to me and trust my advice so when I start losing a lot of things I will admit flat out it started to shake my confidence a bit I started there was a period where I actually started feeling like am I a fraud here and I had looked back on the fact that I had had years of experience with very few losses besides mature males and the losses I had the majority I could figure out exactly what went wrong or at least have an idea that it was nothing I could have done on my end that I could figure out at that time again we don't know so much about their physiology sometimes when they get sick it's tough figuring out what's wrong with them but it wasn't like I forgot the water one or I wasn't feeding them or the substrate wasn't changed whatever it may be but last year it started with a handful of strange deaths either right after a molt or right before molting they'd go into pre-molt I would expect the molt coming, and then next thing you know, the tarantula would become very sluggish, and before long, it would die. And it happened to one, and then it happened to another one. Then it happened to a Kilobrachis species electric blue that I had just rehoused into some substrate I had picked up. It had basically gone into the bottom of its enclosure. It molted. I signed the flashlight in it. I could see it. It constructed its burrow at a place where I could see it. Next thing I know, it, I go back two days later, it's in the exact same position. I'm like, oh no, I dig it up. It had lost two legs and basically bled out on the bottom. There was nothing I could do about it. Then it ended up happening with my 2H Diva Mantha. That one hurt. Those were Christmas gifts from Billy. For me, um, obviously expensive spiders. Let me just make it very clear. I I could care less if I lose a $5 spider or if I lose a $500 spider. It's not, and I don't mean this to to sound like a jerk or like I'm rich because I'm definitely not, but it's not a money thing. It's I'm bothered because I lost an animal. And both of them that I had just recently rehoused, they had come to me in vials in cocoa fiber substrate. They got too big for the vials. I rehoused both of them within a month. Both of them were dead. Then there was an Harpacteria pulchropes. It was just an absolute nightmare. And I remember one night in particular where I had a really rough week at work, or a rough day at work, and I came home and I went in there 
and found my species mumbo assassin bugs. I had had a bunch of babies. I was going to be trading some with a fellow YouTuber. I was really excited about it. He had the whites. And I had taken the babies, rehoused them, put them in a new enclosure. And I came in and four of them were dead right off the bat. Like they'd only been in there for literally two days. And then within the next couple of days, the rest had died. Uh, the, I had to go check out the original pen. When I had taken these guys out, I had changed all the substrate in the original pen. There were a few dead babies in there. It was just, it seemed like every time I went into the room, something was dead. I remember coming out and telling Billy, like, I can't do this much longer because I, a lot of, my spare time is spent doing the Tom's Big Spider stuff, um, doing the videos and the podcasts and the articles, and it takes a lot of time and effort. And it's something you got to kind of enjoy doing. And the hobby in itself is something I do to relieve stress, the feeding, the working. Like I go into my tarantula room. That's my happy place. It's like I feel like weight lifted. And suddenly it's like every time I walk into that room that usually is my stress reliever, it's bringing huge amounts of stress because I was just walking around with a flashlight waiting to see which spider would die next, not having any idea what was killing them. So finally we figured out I had picked up two bags of substrate from Agway. I never buy, never bought substrate from Agway before, but unfortunately it was winter. It was like November. I had a bunch of spiders coming in and Home Depot, where I usually get mine from or Lowe's, had already packed up their stuff and shrink wrapped it so you couldn't really readily get bags. But Agway had theirs out, so I bought two bags for them. And apparently the bags were con- either contaminated. I'm thinking it probably had herbicide in it. I've read things that said herbicides can basically impact insects and arachnids as far as molting. It can stop their molting and kind of cause issues there. That's my guess. I will tell you one of the bags I went through and it had the little green fertilizer beads in it. And I've had people say, oh, I've used this before with no problem, but that may be, and maybe it wasn't these green fertilizer beads that were actually causing the spiders to die, although I really don't want that kind of stuff in with my spiders. However, it does point to the fact this was definitely not pure... Um, organic uh, soil like it was advertised. So there's a big problem right there. So I'm guessing something was sprayed on this dirt. And basically what happened was I stopped every animal that I had on this dirt. And there were a lot because I had done a bunch of rehousings. I had gotten a lot of animals in. And I realized it was all, it all started like around November when things started going wrong. And that's when I started rehousing some that I had just picked up. I picked up a bunch from Fear Not. And they were molting out of their enclosures. So I was putting them in new enclosures. And those were all the ones that were dying. As soon as I took things off of that substrate and put them on different substrate, I had no more problem. I think I lost one more after that, and it was one that had been on that stuff from day one and wasn't doing well to begin with. I rehoused it, but it was gone. So that one really took a toll on me as a keeper, and I will tell you it was very difficult for me to go answer emails from people and comments from people about, you know, their tarantula questions when I was wrestling with my own issues. And I kept alluding to it. I was telling people, yeah, by the way, I'm dealing with massive deaths over here right now. I don't know what's going on because I felt like I needed to like full disclosure. Like you might not want to trust me at the moment. Things are going poorly. But again, I've done a whole thing on losses and how losses impact me. And I know there's a, there's a train of thought that losses are going to happen. If you're raising exotic animals, you're going to have losses. However, my thought was always you keep those to a bare minimum, and if you're having a lot of losses, you're doing something seriously wrong. So when you end up having 12 losses in a two-month period after having maybe two in the last two years that you couldn't account for or couldn't figure out what caused them, that's alarming, and that's something that makes you wonder what you're doing. So I had to take a step back. I had to realize that I hadn't changed anything with the exception of that substrate in years, that I had raised many difficult species from slings to adults without issues and kind of pep talk myself. I 
I reached out to a couple people, friends of mine in the hobby, and basically said, look, this is what I'm going through. I'm really having a rough time here. And it, it kind of felt like an idiot because people were kind of talking me down from like, no, 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 this happens, this happens, but I don't like the this happens excuse. I wanted to know what was going on. So if I had never figured out what had happened there, it, it would have been iffy going ahead how much longer I would have done the public stuff and whether or not I would have sold off some of my collection thinking that it was me. Luckily, I figured out what, what happened with it, and we are not using that brand anymore. I've been using Cocoa Fiber for a while, but then I've been reminded once again why I moved away from Cocoa Fiber to begin with, all those yellow fungusy molds and everything, mushrooms and everything else. Um, so tired of that, but at least my spiders aren't dying, so that's good. So since then, I think I've only had one unexplained death, and again, it was the one that I realized afterwards was on that substrate, so... Knock on wood, so far, so good. So that would be my answer. Yes, I get shaken up, and that's why I hate when people call me an expert and or a professional. I'm, not a, I'm a professional teacher. That's about it. I've done artwork before on a professional level, but um, not a professional. I'm a hobbyist, and everything I do and I report is, I, again, I research. I consider myself to be a well-read guy. I look things up. I don't just go, oh, this died. What happened? I immediately hop online. My spider did this and look for... Other people that have had the same thing see if I can figure anything out about it. But when it comes down to it, I'm a hobbyist who puts things out publicly. That's it. And so when something like that happens, it does make me really aware of that fact, which is why it makes me squirm when people refer to me as an expert or a guru because I just don't see myself that way. I just see myself as somebody with a background in teaching who raises tarantulas, loves tarantulas, and enjoys teaching about them. And unfortunately, I don't have an avenue right now where I work in my school. So you guys get the, I guess, benefit from it. go with that so thanks so much that's an excellent question and um Stuart and thank you for asking I I think it allows me to at least come out and show what my mindset is about all this Tom's Big Spider stuff that I don't see myself sitting over here being the master of tarantulas by any stretch of the imagination I've, I've had problems in the past I'm sure something will come up in the future but I really put myself at a level that I'm always learning always trying to figure things out and I definitely have moments where I'm second-guessing myself, and I think hopefully that comes through not as insecurity, but just being – never getting to that point. I never want to be at that point where I think I know everything. That just seems like it puts you in a really bad spot because once you think you know everything, there's nothing left to learn, then you're, you've closed off your mind. You're not going to pick up new things. You're not going to be open-minded and learn new techniques, and, and I believe the hobby – is about growing, listening to other keepers, listening to new experiences, listening to new, you know, different perspectives, even if some of them seem crazy. Listen to them, figure out if there's something to be gleaned from it. And that's the way to kind of go on the hobby. All right, so we got Drew Croslow. I hope I pronounced your name right, Drew. Tips on feeding arboreal slings. I have a half-inch sea versicolor and a 32-ounce container that I have a hard time feeding. Sorry for stumbling through that one. I'm afraid it won't hunt the cricket if I just drop it in because I never see it on the ground, but it gets spooked when I try to tong feed. I have tried pre-killed, but after 24 hours, it has never seemed to touch the dead cricket. Is 32-ounce too big, or do I need more patience? That is an excellent question, something I've wrestled with myself and something that I've wrestled with recently with how I've, I've kind of changed what I put arboreals in. So let me start off by my versicolor, my back in the day, it was avicularia versicolor, but one of my uh, first slings was an avicularia versicolor and, or now carabina versicolor, obviously. And I picked it up and picked up one of those Jamie's enclosures. So I started in something that was much smaller and I'm glad I did because my experience with the avicularia species, not so much other arboreal species. I haven't had this issue with, say, Tapetacinius or Salmopius or Pisolotheria, definitely not, because those three 
uh, genera, they generally, as slings, will burrow, which makes it easier because if you drop a cricket in, the cricket's running along the ground. They're already on ground level. They can feel it. They hop out of their little, you know, usually dirt curtains or little burrows. They grab it. There's no problem. So I really haven't had an experience, a, a bad experience, feeding those arboreal species. Where I have had issues a couple times is with avicularia or Caribbean versicolor. And I think part of the problem is, unlike other arboreal uh, species, these guys show their arboreal tendencies right off the bat. So again, the three aforementioned ones will burrow. They're on the ground. I get a lot of questions like, I think my spider's broke. I just bought a piece of Letharia metallica and it's burrowing. I don't get it. It's supposed to be arboreal. That's something they do and it makes it a lot easier to feed them. The avicularia species generally will go up, do some webbing and stay up high. Now, when I first got my avicularia versicolor, my Caribbean versicolor, I'm going to keep slipping because I'm thinking in the past, I had read that they will come down and hunt. So I had my little Jamie's enclosure. I set it up and put in the cork bark, put in the little leaf. It webbed up behind the leaf, which is perfect, made like this little cyclone tunnel of webbing up in the corner. And I would pop open the bottom and drop in a little roach. I was using the Red Runner roaches at that time. And I would come back and check on it the next morning, and the roach would still be there. So I would basically take the roach out and then try again a couple days later. Wasn't eating, wasn't eating. Finally, I figured out they this one was not coming down to hunt. I, it didn't matter how many. I dropped in three, which is something you probably shouldn't do. But I figured maybe the you know stampede of three little roaches on the bottom would attract it to come down and hunt. It did not. It came down. It wasn't eating. I knew for a fact it had molted at least a week earlier. I could see the little molt in there kind of jammed in the webbing. It should have been eating. So I got worried. So what I did was I popped the bottom of the enclosure off. I tipped it on its side. So basically the bottom of its little web tunnel was facing the bottom open part of the enclosure. And I used a little thing of tweezers and I took a roach and kind of stunned it a little bit and put it in the opening to the webbing. And the thing started struggling within two seconds. That thing came down that my little versicolor is now a big, beautiful female came down, snatched it right up and ate it. So it got me thinking, all right, they're saying on all the boards I'm on, do not tong feed. And I'm not again, I've, I've tong fed exactly three different species. All of them were versicolor or Caribbean or first Caribbean versicolor or avicularia species. That's it. And it was because they were not coming down the feed. I don't care what people were saying. Mine were not coming down the feed. And I think we have a problem sometimes where people don't have issues. So they automatically assume that that is it. All spiders are like this. And we have to remember some are different. I think people need to be aware of the fact that avicularia, if you set them up in a large, a super large enclosure, they will often not come down to hunt. I have an avicularia metallica or what is it? More form seven of avicularia, avicularia, more form six, I think. Well, six or seven. And that one rarely comes down to hunt. I've put roaches in, come back the next morning, the roaches are still there. She had just molted, I believe, three months ago and hadn't eaten for a month afterwards. I'm like, what is going on? So finally, I took a roach, dangled it in there with the tongs. She was on that thing so quickly. It was one of those ones I wish I was doing the off the tongs challenge at the time because I would have had amazing footage. Grab that thing. I actually bought bamboo tongs just to feed this one spider. My versicolor female, once she put on some size, she would actually come down. I would see her every once in a while come down and grab something off the ground. But as a sling, this basically what I would do is I would pop open the enclosure. And it was great because at one point she got conditioned to know that when that enclosure got tilted on its side, again, I don't think we can argue about tarantula and spider intelligence all day long. I have, I've seen things that lead me to believe that they're not necessarily smart like a dog, like you can't teach them tricks, but they can be conditioned to respond to different things. She seemed to be conditioned to respond that when I took the bottom off the enclosure, 
It was one of those AMAC type boxes. Laid it on its side. She would come right to the base of her webbing. And it got to the point where I'd just take my little tweezers, grab the little roach, and hand it to her. She'd grab it right out of the thing and start eating it. She knew it was coming. And that's how I fed her until she finally put on enough size and filled in her enclosure with enough webbing that she could feel them. But yeah, I feel that sometimes with the avicularia and the carabina, it can be difficult getting them to come down the hunt when they're slings. I will say that those are species that I encourage people to start in something smaller. I actually... Actually, you know, we, we talk about the 32-ounce deli cups being great for the arboreal species. And again, I think they're great for arboreal species that do some burrowing. I think they're great for arboreal species that are maybe over an inch or so. You know, that's a good size to start them in. But I have seen that it can be difficult to, A, spot your spider. If you have a really small arboreal one, I put um, recently some Pisolotheria what was it? It was um, Vitata slings. When I got my Vitata slings, I think it was. I put them in 32-ounce deli cups. I couldn't find them half the time. It was freaking me out. So I do think that putting the avicularia, it's prudent to start them in slightly smaller enclosures. With my babies that I got from my sack, from my Carabina Versicolor female, the one I was just talking about that I was tongue feeding, we bred her. She had a sack of just absolutely gorgeous blue babies. And the majority of them I uh, gave to Tanya or traded to Tanya Fearnot and got some stuff in return. But those guys, I the ones I kept, I kept in the larger dram bottles. I put in quite a bit of moss. You want to make sure with the avicularia slings and the carabina slings that you give them anchor points because what will happen is the more they web, the more chance there is of the prey items climbing up on that webbing and triggering that feeding response. That's a big, big part of it, I think. With my original girl, when I had her, she had webbed up in the upper corner. There was no way that the little roaches were going to make it up there to trigger that webbing. There was nothing for them to climb on to get up there. They never really made it up there with the cork bark. So she didn't find them. But I have found that if there's a lot of webbing. I have two uh, two of the slings left that I kept, the, vers- the Versicolor slings. And I found that with those smaller enclosures, they web up. And then they, even if you drop it on the ground, eventually the roach or the cricket is going to wander up, hit that webbing, and that's going to trigger their response and they're going to go hunt. So in the meantime... I don't know if you're tong feeding with large tongs. I use little tweezers and try to grab them by the back butt so that they can't, so it doesn't look like there's this big hand coming toward them or this big set of tongs, and that's worked well for me. Um, killing one and dropping it on the in the opening of the webbing, if it has webbing, so you basically kill the cricket, drop it right in the opening. They should have made a little funnel web, and it should be, usually there's a top opening, a bottom opening. You drop it, I usually kind of wedge it in that bottom opening, dangle it in there and see if it finds it, because I've had very good luck with them finding them as long as they're in the actual webbing. But make sure you leave it in a place that you can pull it out if it doesn't eat. But being a a half-inch C-Versicolor sling, yes, I would probably, if it were mine, I would house it in something smaller. I know people will probably disagree with me, say theirs have done fine, but the 32-ounce, I'm I'm picturing the half-inch size ones I had. I had those in the little dram bottles. Their diameter was probably an inch and a half, maybe, maybe by three inches tall with a piece, you know, with some substrate in the bottom, some the cork bark leaned to the side, and some moss that they can kind of web around, and that allows you to keep track of the spider more and makes it easier for the spider to feel more secure and to find the prey. So yeah, I think I would probably... If I were you and in your position, I would probably rehouse into something smaller. Again, we get into these standards for the hobby and we tell everybody 32 ounce deli cup is perfect for any arboreal sling. I've done it and my older stuff, I said, oh, yeah, if you're going to start it off. And my older stuff, I said, oh, yeah, arboreals go great and 32 ounce deli cups. I've changed my opinion a bit. 
Larger arboreal slings, inch, inch and a quarter or so, perfect for those. The bur- burrowing ones, you can probably get away with for those because the prey will run around the bottom, they'll grab it. But for the ones that are truly arboreal, some of these other species that will hang up, up high and web up high, you want to give them something smaller so they can find the prey until they put on some size. So, uh, again, in my newer videos, when I talk about species care, I always mention the dram bottles for smaller slings. Even for my, we used to talk about 16-ounce deli cups being perfect for terrestrials, and when you got little tiny terrestrials, they'll be swimming in something that size. So I've talked about using the little souffle cups and smaller things, and again, the dram bottles, I've, I didn't like them at first. I get them more now, and it's easier to monitor the feeding of the slings to make sure the moisture levels are right. So, yeah, don't be afraid to downsize a little bit. Again, make sure the key with those arboreal species is to make sure they have things to web to. I know sometimes, like with a piece of Lotharia, I don't go nuts putting a bunch of fake leaves and stuff on the cork bark because I know it's just going to burrow and kind of web it all up behind it anyway. But for an Avicularia species or the Caribbean Versicolor, I am going to make sure there's a lot of stuff for them to anchor to. So they build those little web tunnels. They feel secure there. They do their molting there. They hunt from there. And the more webbing you have, the more chance that those little feeder bugs are going to get entangled in it or trip it. And they're going to come down and munch on them and find them as opposed to have them roaming around the bottom. So yes, I've seen the same thing you've seen. They will often not come down to the bottom. No matter what people tell you, that is an issue with these guys sometimes. And with a 32-ounce size container, there's a very good chance it's not coming down the bottom to eat. And again, if you have to, with some of these guys, that's one of the few, those are the few species that I've actually tong fed because I have had issues with even adults coming down to hunt. Just make sure you get softer tongs so they don't hurt their fangs on them because that's a big issue. I see the feeding videos sometimes where they're latching onto these metal tongs and attacking them. I'm so afraid they're going to crack a fang. I've got bamboo ones. They have ones you can get the little plastic grippies on them. Get something soft. Keep your hands out of the way though because they can fly up, miss the cricket or the roach, and go right up your arms so be careful of that so good luck let me know if that helps if you rehouse i'd love to hear what happened with it and if it sets up just know if you do rehouse it it's going to take a little while to settle in but just make sure it has enough stuff to anchor webbing to so it can feel secure and hopefully within a week or so you'll see it eating all right so again guys these questions are fantastic let's see if we can get a couple more as i click away shorter ones to cover because we're, we're getting we're running out of time here i'm kind of surprised i thought i was gonna be able to get more done but apparently i'm very long-winded Jason Peters, obviously mature males don't live very long, but they do they start to act weird, a.k.a. lose their minds? Well, nah, I'm not going to go there. My mature male, Grandma Stola Porteri, matured two years ago, and he's just started going insane, almost DKS-like symptoms. Well, Jason, um, the, honestly, what it comes down to is, yeah, that's kind of normal. I mean, again, it could be displaying DKS systems because it could have been contaminated by something like a pesticide or a detergent. I don't know. And I'm not judging. I'm not saying this happened, but that's one of the things that's thought to cause those types of symptoms. It's like a neurological thing where the tarantula's basically been poisoned. However, with an old male, it makes sense that it's going to start to lose some of its coordination. Eventually, basically what they do is just waste away and die. Now, normally what happens is they just get slow, more lethargic. They start looking really rapid and then they just kind of slow down and curl up but I have had ones that seem to kind of lose it a little bit I'm thinking in terms of I had a it was an NNC at the time or HNC at the time Neoholotheli NC now and I had one of my males went a little bonkers and lost its coordination and ended up dying DKS kind of type symptoms but at this point it was a very old ratty, run-down, thin male, so I didn't think anything of it. So if it's been matured two years, I mean, that's a decent amount of time for the mature male to live. 
then there's a good possibility that it's just coming to the end of its life cycle and things are breaking down. I mean, we don't, again, I, I seem to mention this all the time, we don't sadly know very much about tarantula physiology and their ailments and what happens to them. So just think of when people get old, It's we, we say they die of old age, but there's many different things that lead to people dying, you know, from heart attacks to strokes to just, you know, think, I don't know, I don't want to get morbid on this one on a flipping Sunday morning, but there's a lot of different things that can lead to people dying. We just say old age because the long and short of it is they're old, the bodies are giving out, and some type of function has quit working and that's killed them. And I'm sure it's probably the same way with spiders. Some of them just shut down and die quietly in their quote-unquote sleep. Other ones start to lose their coordination and things of that nature. So unfortunately, what you're probably seeing is fairly normal. Could it have been? I mean, if I, quite frankly, what I'd be checking out is the rest of the spiders in your collection if you have more of them to see whether you're seeing the same thing with them. If another spider starts displaying these type of symptoms, either a healthy female or a sling, then I would start wondering what happened. Like, could something have been sprayed in the house? Um, I just had somebody talk to me. It was horrific. They, were, they have an apartment and basically the landlord came in and sprayed for roaches in their apartment and it basically led to a bunch of DKS symptoms, dead spiders. It was just a horrific story. And I was talking to my wife who does pest control for a living. And she's like, I, what he did was ridiculous and illegal and stupid. But anyway, sometimes stuff like that happens. So I don't know your living situation. I don't know if there's anybody else in the house that could have sprayed something. If it's just him, I would honestly be, I, I would be led to believe it's unfortunately just symptoms of old age. So I'm just going to warn everybody right now that I have Lily sleeping on the couch behind me and she is probably pushing 14 or 15. She was a rescue dog, a breeder, and she has a rather nasty snoring problem. So if everybody hears something that sounds like snoring or a pig in the background, that's just my my Lily, my love goblin, snoring away on the couch. I keep pausing it and stopping it and trying to kind of rouse her out of her sleep. I'm like, Lily, can you stop snoring? Because I don't want it in the background. But you know what? We're just going to let her go for the rest of this. It'll add some nice ambient noise in the background. Um, Tony Moreau, best class from tarantula species, not for handling, but for observation. I love that you put the not for handling part in. I just had a discussion with the teacher who was asking about getting a tarantula she wanted to handle in front of her students. And I was trying to explain the fact that a lot of us don't. And again, I don't want to get into the handling discussion. I think everybody knows my stance. I'm very open to it. But my personal feeling is that people need to know we don't have to handle them. And I'm just afraid kids are going to walk away going, I want a spider because I want to hold it and it's going to be fluffy. And I, I just worry about that. But Anyway, Tony, best I, I mean the best spider you could possibly get right now would be the Homeoma chilensis, X um Eulathus species red. I think those are still as far as just being gentle and cool spiders, amazing. Of course, that would be more on the handling side for not handling but for observation. I, God, it, it, there's so many of them. The albopelosum, just people seem to really dig them. I love my albopelosums. And if you get a, a, a real albopelosum with those curly hairs, they're very striking looking. They're fluffy. They, I think the curly hairs and the bad hair day attitude they have kind of makes them more appealing to people. They look kind of cuter, for lack of a better term. Um, Gramostola pulcropies, a larger uh, specimen of Gramostola pulcropies, personally is one of my favorites. Very striking with those gold knees. And they get to be big, beefy spiders, seven. I've heard heard people say they're eight inches I, I don't know yet mine are not that large yet they're taking forever to grow I think my largest is about five and a half now but those would be a great species because mine just pretty much sit there the if you get a smaller specimen maybe a juvenile they'll dig so it's not like they'll just be you know sitting in a corner the entire time they'll do some digging and some excavating but any there's there's a lot of uh what is it uh oh my gosh 
total brain fart there. Brachypelma hammeri would be another good one, or the real smithy, if you can find a real smithy. Beautiful spiders, very calm, just kind of sit there, good eaters. So really, any any of those, just make sure, I will tell you, one of the issues I'm having now is I'm trying to get tarantulas in my class and we have our cleaning crew that comes in at nighttime, and A, they absolutely load spiders, I know for a fact, because I spoke to a couple of them, and B, they tend to spray a lot of chemicals around my room when they're cleaning stuff up, like I come in the morning, sometimes it smells like a hospital with the amount of stuff they've used, and I do worry about that with the cleaning, so you got to make sure that your cleaning crew is aware of the fact that you have an animal in there that hopefully are mature enough to not purposely spray them, because some of them absolutely loathe spiders. I'm not kidding on this one. I had one of the people I talked to got a little heated because I I get along with my um, custodial staff incredibly well. I love these guys, but there was uh, one guy in particular that did not like spiders and was like, well, if I see this thing out, I'm going to kill it. And yeah, nobody, that's not going to work for me. So make sure that if you do keep them in your room, that you have, that there's a sign on them, letting people know not to spray any chemicals around. Talk to your you know principal, your custodial staff, make sure they're well aware. I usually like to hang back. They come after, you know, usually right around at, right after school, and I like to hang back and talk to them, and that's a good time to do it. But any of those species, a Gramasola, you really can't go wrong. A Fonapelma calcodes, I would say just go to my beginner species list and choose one of those. I've even had people that keep, um, what is it, a, a Canthoscuria geniculata. Again, those are a little more feisty, but if you're not handling, they are gorgeous and impressive. And just that spider sitting there in that aquarium, they're going to be out in the open a lot. As long as you're not handling, that's a neat-looking spider. And it shouldn't, you know, they they can toss up the threat poses or whatnot. But again, with kids... I spend a lot of time talking to my kids about tarantulas, obviously, and I want to educate them on it, but I also want them to be safe because I know some of these kids are going to go out and try to buy some later on. So I try to explain the fact that they're not like having a little puppy or a little kitty or a ferret or whatnot, that even some of the beginner species can have some attitude. So sometimes seeing a threat posture is good because the kids will realize, yes, this is what happens. As long as you you know explain to them, this isn't my spider being aggressive. It's scared right now. This is how it's reacting. It's making itself look larger. It's baring its fangs because in the wild, if a big uh, predator comes on it, it needs to try to scare the predator off. So it's a good way to teach the kids that, yes, they will defend themselves. They do have fangs. But more often than not, I think a geniculata would just be sitting there. The one thing I would worry about with the geniculata might be the hairs a little bit, but Mine have, mine was never a really big kicker. Other people could chime in on this one. So, again, uh, Tony, you have a large selection, but I, I think your standard Pulcropies, Hammeri, I still love the Rosea. I, it's, it's still one of my favorites. I know they've fallen out of favor. And they're kind of boring. but So if you're looking for something that's got some color and might be a little more entertaining, a Pulcropies, even a Lazyodora Parahabana would be a nice one because those get huge. I'm telling you, nothing impresses people like a giant spider. But the trick is when you're working with kids, and I don't know which age group you're working with, I think the trick is to appeal more to that uh, that fascination side and to not aggravate that fear side, if that makes sense. So a lot of people come in being both scared and fascinated. You want to kind of grab onto that fascination, but not freak them out. So if you get something really huge in there, it's throwing up threat postures, freaking out, striking everywhere. That's just going to make kids look at it and go, forget that. I do think it's important that they see they can defend themselves, but you don't want them startled away from the hobby. So again, let me know what you got. And for those of you who have tarantulas in your classroom, I know somebody in my school has when the kids keep telling me it's not kept correctly and I have to go talk to the teacher. This is going to be funny. But um, they have she has a G. Porteri rosea. And 
the kids are totally fascinated by it and it just sits there all day long apparently but they still just that's a thing when we get in the whole you know people say they g rose is a, a terrible beginner tarantula because i'll hear that they're boring they're pet rocks they don't do anything it's going to turn people off when you're first into tarantulas just having a giant spider hairy spider sitting there is fascinating enough it really doesn't need to be doing that much and i can tell you from somebody who used to be arachnophobic that having them do a lot actually makes it stressful so that can make a great spider kids are just going to be impressed by that so yeah i would say any of those species would make good ones i'd be very curious to hear if you pick one up what you end up getting and for other teachers out there that have them in the classroom please chime in let me know what you have all right looks like we have time for one more let's see heidi stanley i have a lot of sling pots in one area piled up two or three high can this cause stress as they may feel vibrations of others or any enclosure and tea sizes stacked actually, or do they just get used to it if they sense others? That's a great question. I uh, that was something I actually worried about when I first got into hobby in the hobby, and I have a picture somewhere where my collection was kind of small. I think I only had about a dozen tarantulas, and they're all spaced out on the shelves because I kind of took the approach like when you have dogs in kennels, if they're too close to each other, the dogs start kind of fighting between the boundaries between them and trying to go at each other. And I thought maybe the spiders would sense each other and be trying to fight and eat each other. In most instances, no, it doesn't matter. I stack a lot of my enclosures. I actually look for stackable enclosures because it saves on space. So if I have a shelf, I have several of them stacked too high and I've never had an issue. The only time I've ever seen it come into play is when I've had a receptive female and a male. It was a two-piece Letheria that the male was in an enclosure on top and the female was in an enclosure on the bottom and they were tapping away at each other and you could tell they knew each other. Would, they recognized that the other one was there and they kept tapping but that's about it i've kept sling stacked many of when i had my uh what was it hapalopa sleep species columbia large slings i had those stacked three high there were no issues whatsoever they don't seem in most circumstances to even recognize the other ones are there they don't hear the footsteps and go into hunt mode there's nothing like that i've kept them like this now for years my slings are stacked up my some of my adults are stacked up i've never had an issue with it so do they sense them i'm sure at a, in a occasionally when one of them's moving around if one of them's running around the enclosure i guess that pitter pat could alert the other spider that something's there but more often than not they creep around so carefully and so slowly i don't think they really notice it and i've never had an issue with it so no i would say go ahead stack them up not a problem uh, unless they're and again for those of you that have had receptive males or males tapping that with a female nearby that's receptive you will see them responding to each other personally you know kind of tapping and one taps back and that's something totally different though under most circumstances with slings definitely not i've never had an issue i stack them all the time i'm guessing the dealers have a lot of them that i've seen they have these little like the sterilite uh slide out drawers plastic drawers and they stack them all up in there and there's never any issues so no feel free to stack them up heidi there's gonna be no problem at all with it so heidi feel free to stack them up no issue whatsoever there especially with slings and, and adults again i have a bunch of adults in the room stacked up no issues i have ones that are right next to each other literally with the vents lining up and i've never seen any friction between them so nope no problem whatsoever continue stacking them i think that's one of the cool parts of the hobby and keeping tarantulas is the fact that you can keep them in containers that and keep them close together and stack them up which saves room which will lead us into a question that we're going to approach probably next week it's coming up but how to explain to people why we keep so many of these things and you know where is i I like to think where is the fine line between having a huge collection and hoarding that's come up before so that's something we're going to approach later but that's going to be probably an entire episode of its own 
And we'll just do one more quick one. What the heck? If I go over, it only cost me like three bucks anyway. Um, Connor Danny Andy asks, why won't you allow people to support you via Patreon? Oh, man, this is (laughs) – the only reason I'm tackling this one is I literally got two emails just this week of people asking me where my Patreon page was. And one person got really upset when I told them I had one for like a year and a half and didn't launch it. Like like personally affronted that I wouldn't launch the thing. Uh, Connor, this is a tough one for me to answer. Uh, First off, I do this for fun. I started Tom's Big Spiders as a joke, like it was something that I was doing just kind of as an outlet, and I enjoyed talking about spiders. My poor wife was listening to me talk about them all the time, and I did one, and it was like just my family doing it. So I never expected it to turn into anything like this. I know a lot of people start like YouTube channels and things of that nature with the hopes of becoming popular. They watch their subscriber counts. They do all this stuff to promote. I've never actively promoted. I don't go out seeking you know, collaborations that will hopefully get more eyes. I mean, it's not what I do. I've found that I've created this nice little niche or niche for myself where people eventually stumble on me when they get serious in the hobby and seem to appreciate that I'm forthright with my information, that I know what I'm talking about and try to put out only the best information out there and they find me that way. And for me, it's an extension of the hobby. Like I enjoy talking to people on it. I enjoy it. I've learned stuff doing this. People ask me questions. Sometimes I have to go research. It's things I might not have thought about and it causes me to kind of go out and do some research. I enjoy talking to other hobbyists because I just love spiders and it's fun to talk about. And I never saw this as a money-making endeavor. I have a job that I enjoy. Uh, Billy and I make enough money between us that we're not hurting for anything. I mean, maybe in the future, if I retire, it'd be something I could look at turning this into, you know, we've talked about doing our own exotic pet store someday. It's been something we've been discussing a bit. Um, But for the time being, I don't need the money and this is fun for me and I don't ever want it to feel like a job. And I think part of it is I have this weird thing about making money off of animals, which... uh, I'll get over it eventually. Another part of it is if I'm putting stuff up and people are paying me monthly to do something I'm doing for free, it feels weird to me. It just feels odd and off and it's, I won't monetize my YouTube channel for the same thing. Like I don't want my, I honestly don't want my videos getting interrupted by ads. I want people to go on, find my stuff and immediately find the information they want, not sit there and see an ad for a Nerf gun or whatever, whatever may be playing. It's just, there's no point in it. I don't need the money. So what's the point? Um, I will say looking ahead, I've been talking more and more and kind of discussing with Billy and I've had a lot of people come forward lately and ask me why I don't do a Patreon page. So I am again, giving it thought. I may actually break one out this year. We'll see. I've said this, I think three or four times already. Somebody already called me on that fact. I did set up a page a while back and just felt weird, weird doing it. Like I, I recorded my video and it just felt weird. I also want to make sure that I have time to devote to the forum that kind of comes along with it because the thing for me, if I'm going to do something like that, it's going to be a more fun way to interact with people on that uh, avenue or that venue to be able to be on that forum and kind of post like maybe behind the scenes stuff or whatever, but I want to make sure I have time for it. So I think a lo- it comes down to, for me, I don't ever want this to feel like a job. The day the Tom's Big Spiders thing feels like a job and there's been some days where I've come home and I'm exhausted and I've got to do something. Like I told somebody I'd have a video in or I, you know, whatever it may be, there's a bunch of emails that I have to answer. That's when it stops, starts being a job, then it stops being fun. And when it stops being fun, I'm done with this. I'm not going to continue to do something that I'm, you know, it's become a chore to me. And I did artwork for many, many years, and one of the reasons I I was originally an art major, I decided not to go into art as a career, is because art is an outlet for me. I enjoy doing it, and as soon as there's money attached and your livelihood depends on it, it's not fun anymore, at least for me. I mean, there's artists, obviously, 
feel great about it and have no problem doing it. For me, I like it to be a fun outlet that I don't have to do if I don't want to. And I feel like if I open up this to Patreon and people start spending money, then if I have an off month where I don't feel like doing any content or I need to take a break, these people are going to be like, what am I paying for? So I don't want that hanging over my head. So I am giving it, Connor, I'll, I'll admit, I am giving a lot of thought. I think we're probably going to end up doing something because people seem to, I'm starting to get the other side of it where people really feel like they want to give back. They appreciate what I'm doing. They, they, I had one person go, I feel like I'm stealing information and not paying for it. And one guy was like, I even, when Wikipedia comes up and they have that drive where if you pledge $3, I even do that because I feel like I want to support them. So I'm starting to get that aspect of it. I just don't have any lofty goals as far as what I want to buy. I do want to redo my tarantula room. So I'm thinking if I did something, what it will just lead to is me buying a lot of acrylic enclosures, setting up some more naturalistic habitats, which I would obviously make videos of and talk about. That might be something I do. I don't know. So, Connor, we were just, Billy and I were just talking about this. I was also putting together sweatshirts and T-shirts. I thought the whole idea of merchandise was absolutely ridiculous. And I think people that talk to me behind the scenes know that I kind of weirded out by the whole, like, I'm just some dude making videos and, and articles about tarantulas and podcasts about tarantulas. I don't, when people come up and, like, ask for where they can send fan mail, it just, I don't get it per se and I'm not this is not an insult to anybody that's done this it's just it's tough for me to justify in my head that I'm not just some goober doing this stuff and people are not just looking for information going hey thanks and moving on that they really want to contribute and support and and show that by sending gifts or whatnot that whole aspect is just still kind of foreign to me so I am looking into doing t-shirts and stuff because I've had people be like, hey, where can I buy one of your t-shirts? Like, matter of factly, like, I obviously have t-shirts. I'm like, I've, I've never done a t-shirt in my life. Somebody asked me for a sticker. They're in a band. Obviously, I'm huge into metal, and they want to put a Tom's Big Spider sticker on their guitar case, and I'm like, I don't have stickers. So I will be looking into doing some merchandise, and again, what I will do is be totally transparent with it and go, all right, if I make money from the merchandise, then what we're doing is pouring it right back into the hobby. But I think part of it is the fact that I don't have any real goals. I hear I'm on a tarantula YouTube uh, Facebook group where I hear a lot of people where they're setting goals for, you know, how many subscribers they want and whatnot. And that's, I think, honestly, 100% normal. Like I was explaining to Billy, we, we've had a lot of chats about this. That's the normal line of thinking. You're being successful. You want to get compensated for it. You want to turn it into something that's making you money. I totally get that. It's just not what I'm into at the moment. So this has got really long, but I want to make sure that I don't offend anybody with my explanation. So I will, I'm most likely going to set one up. I was on it the other day adding some more stuff because I basically keep putting up things for free on it, but I never open it to the public. I will probably open it up. I want to come up with some gifts I can give people that pledge a lot because I honestly thought people would pledge like a dollar or whatever, but I had somebody like, I pledge 20 bucks a month, which blew my mind. Like, where do you take the money? Buy spiders with it. It's totally cool. But I want to make sure that people that pledge get something in return, and I want to make sure I have the time to devote that if people pledge, that I'm at least, in the very least, interacting with them on that platform because they deserve to have a little extra attention if they're doing that, but also that I'm able to keep it up on the other fronts, that I'm able to keep up the YouTube videos and the podcast. I think now with the podcast going that I've only missed one week total of the podcast, and it's very easy to do, and you guys have just give me a ton of extra information or questions to deal with in future podcasts. I think the podcast is something that I can consistently do so I can feel like that in the very least, even if I have to take a break for a couple of weeks with videos or obviously the articles aren't as quick to come as they were before, I can still keep things going in that respect and, and feel comfortable with people giving money toward it. So long story short, 
I'm seriously considering it. We're talking about it. I will probably end up submitting my tax information to them. That's another thing that kind of creeps me out is we're in a, I, I don't want to bump myself up into another tax bracket right now. I'm in Connecticut. We're taxed to the gills as it is. But um, look for some information on it soon as I probably won't promote it very much. I'll probably say, hey, there's one out there. See what happens. I'll put a link in my videos, but I'm not going to talk about it all that much. I'm not going to constantly mention it in my videos, just like I'm not telling people to smash the like button. But I, I will say it does cost money to run the website. It does cost money to run the podcast. So even if I get that paid for, I guess that would be pretty cool. So probably a very long-winded answer for that, but it's not an easy thing for me to answer. But I I do think people, I'm getting now understanding more why people are getting upset with me when I won't put up one. It it was weird to me before, but it's, it's making more sense. I've talked to some other people that have given me a different perspective on it. And it's like, it's their money. If they feel strongly, they want to do this. Like you go and buy band t-shirts and specifically buy them off their websites. Like I buy a lot of band merchandise because I want to support the bands because I love their music. And when I put it in that perspective, it made more sense. So yes, look for t-shirts and sweatshirts, obviously black hoodies coming. Cause that's my favorite thing. And I want one of those. Um, look for a Patreon page. I'll tell you what, I'll make a promise. Now there will be a Patreon page coming this year. There we go. We'll do that. And then uh, we'll take it from there. And hopefully you guys will come up with some good ideas for me to make it worth your while because I still feel weird taking anybody's money. All right, that one's going to sap up a lot of my time for the podcast, but I think there were some good questions there, and it kind of allowed me to break out a little bit, have some fun, and talk about some things I personally, I particularly like the question about whether or not my I've ever been shaken or my confidence has been shaken or thought about giving up on the hobby because that's something that's kind of, you know, fairly fresh and something I like talking about because I think people need to hear, like, they'll come with me with stories. I got an email the other day about somebody that was feeding and they were showing somebody the feeding the spider because they were interested and they poked the roach and basically what happened was the spider latched onto the brush they were poking the roach with or the tongs and they jerked their hand back and the spider went flying and hit the floor and they were like beside themselves upset because they thought they hurt the spider and I had to explain to them I did the exact same thing before I was feeding my L.A. Debune I was showing my son how you know crazy the eater was I dropped the roach in it didn't grab it so I went to pick up the roach it grabbed the tongs I flipped my hand and the thing went flying luckily it only landed a few inches lower on top of an aquarium I had and didn't get hurt but I've done the mistakes I've done everything everybody out there has done wrong for them well not everything but some of the things I've done too so I totally get it it's still fresh in my mind so it's why again why I freak out when people refer to me as a professional every once in a while Billy would be on Facebook like oh somebody's talking about you being a professional again it's like no I'm not a professional I'm a hobbyist I'm a professional teacher I think that's where I excel but uh, as far as you know professionals those are the guys that are out there in the fields documenting these guys studying them that's not me so that'll do it for this one. It's going to be an hour long. It looks like, see, we'll use a Patreon page to pay for all the times I'm going to end up running over, which actually that would be a pretty good idea. I think it costs me, I think it's $4 for every hour. If I run over a minute, I'm allotted three hours a month for my Buzzsprout podcast. And if I run over even a minute, they charge me an extra $4. So it ends up costing me $4 to do the podcast. So if we did Patreon, I could do some longer ones sometimes, which would be kind of cool. So, all right, I'm trying to rationalize how I could do one of these pages now that I just promised I would open one up. That'll do it for me. Enough rambling. Uh, please feel free to tell me, Tom, shut up in the comment section of the Facebook page if I went on too long for this one, but I'm feeling comfortable today and figured it was time to do a long one. We will be covering more of these questions on the Facebook page when uh, next week, and some of them will be whole, like the one about the aquarium will probably be a half a podcast in itself. There's a couple other great ones. So guys, if I didn't get to your questions, know it's coming. And if you want to continue to add questions, please keep adding questions. It gives you more things to talk about. And obviously you can see with the amount of information I was, or questions I was given to talk about here, we ran an hour. 
we'll continue doing that if that's the way it pans out. So thanks so much for listening. Catch me on YouTube. Again, please feel free to vote for my feeding clip. It involves my Pamphibedius species, Araño Pollito. Um, that will be on the Fatal Fangs Challenge going up Sunday. This will probably go up. Bef- I'll try to get this up before that so people know about it. And I'll be posting on my Facebook page. Check out my YouTube channel. Check out my website. That's about it. That's, that'll do it for this one. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you guys all next time.